I'm Tom Wilbur, and I'm here to share with you briefly just the fact that uh, I'm a person who has dealt with uh, codependency, with compulsive debting, and with envy. I'm Lisa, and I'm an alcoholic, and I grew up in an alcoholic family, and I started drinking at a really early age. I thought it made me feel prettier and made me funnier, and it made me fit like I fit in. It's the sort of thing that I went through a long period of my life where I always felt everyone else had it better than I did, and I felt that I deserved more. I got caught with two DWIs in four months, and I realized that I might be an alcoholic. And for me, admitting that I had a problem was the first step for me becoming unstuck. And it was a, that sense of emptiness in me that drove me to spend and spend and spend. To spend on other people so that I could feel better about myself, to uh, envy other people who were better looking or had more money or anything like that. Before I was, uh, you know, an emotional wreck. I wasn't sure where I was going or what I was doing. I was on probation at work. My career was in the toilet. And it was the sort of thing, I got to a point where I was over $167,000 a credit card in debt. And that's a lot of envy. And as it turned out, I just went, dear God in heaven, I need help, because my life was spinning out of control. And I was on the verge of losing a house. I was really afraid that I'd become homeless. I got into a recovery program, and I could clear away the wreckage from my past and meet some people to give me some support. Then I got involved with Celebrate Recovery, who helps me to give back a little bit of what Jesus has so freely given me, the freedom and the happiness to live my life fully. And since that time, I've totally paid off that debt. My house is paid for, my cars are paid for, and I'm in a place where I can really offer hope to other people that no matter how deep the hole, God can deliver you out of it, and I'm grateful to Jesus Christ for that. Since I've gotten sober, I've gotten married. I have two beautiful kids and two beautiful dogs. I own my own home. I'm starting my own business, and life's pretty good. Well, I love those stories. My name is Gary Gonzalez, by the way. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and I have the pleasure of uh, sharing in this series that we call Unstuck. And I'm so glad you're here. Maybe you're visiting with us, and we'll recap a little bit as we get into it. But I love these stories because not only are these real people, they're, they're real overlakers. They're involved in the life and ministry of our church. And it's fun to see people you know and to recognize we are all on a journey. And it's great when people are able to come forward and share in a way where they found some victory. But I'm sure I'm speaking for everybody in this series when we say none of us are perfect. None of us have arrived. We've not completed the journey. Doesn't mean, you know, we're riding off into the sunset without ever facing another issue again. But it's a huge step in our journey of spiritual transformation. And so this morning when you came in and you looked at the notes and maybe you saw the title of the message today, Really Real, you wondered, well, why would you have two reels in one title? Like, isn't one real enough? So let me ask you a question. Have you ever said to someone, let me be honest with you? You ever said that? Nobody? Am I the only one? No, there we go. Okay. So were you not being honest up to that point? Of course not. We know it's a figure of speech, but I think it contains a lingering truth that it is difficult. It is often difficult to be really real. We aspire to that. We work toward that. And there are moments when we get a glimpse of what it means to be truthful in a relationship and a conversation, but we don't live there all the time. No one does. In fact, this problem really goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. At least that's where it surfaces in the Bible. Now think about this. Just three chapters into the Old Testament, 
we already have this situation that we all know about Adam and Eve and about their disobedience to God. And when you read through that story, you begin to see right from the beginning, all of this tendency to cover up and to hide comes into play. And people step back and they start pointing fingers. You know, the totem pole of the dysfunctional. It goes like this. And all of us are in that place at some point. Now, I have a daughter who's a huge Disney fan, and a, a few weeks ago she emailed me a quote spelling out some of the often overlooked truths about some of her favorite characters. It goes like this. Dear parents, Jasmine was in a relationship with a dirty homeless boy named Aladdin. Snow White lived alone with seven men. Pinocchio was a liar. Robin Hood was a thief. Tarzan walked around naked. A stranger kissed Sleeping Beauty, and she married him. And Cinderella lied and snuck out to, at night to attend a party. And then it concludes by saying this. Who can blame us? We were taught to rebel from an early age. And you know, that really is the message of Scripture. We have been bent toward rebellion from the very beginning. So I guess it just goes to prove we've all got issues. We all do. But it's difficult, isn't it, to be courageous about those issues? And at times we need to be discreet. But the reality is the Bible, this is what I love about Scripture, it's so clear when it says there is a sin problem in the world. Now, I know that word sin conjures up certain connotations to people about being as bad as they can be and being awful people and unlovable people and shame on you. But that's not the meaning of the word. It primarily means we're not able to live up to the standard that God has set for creation. None of us can do it. Sin is a recognition that all of us fall short at some point, even in terms of our own expectations. And this is why Jesus came. Jesus loves us. God wants the best for us. And the amazing thing about the Christian life is it's less about doing than receiving. In fact, there's a word. We sang the word a moment ago. It's the word grace. We use it a lot in churches. But the word grace literally means gift. It means something unmerited and undeserved. And this is what God has done for us. This, of course, is the core message of Scripture. But that doesn't mean we don't have a role to play. And this is where I think we sometimes miss the mark. You know, Paul said... um, We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that little expression, work out, is uh, revealing, I think, about the fact that God invites us into a journey. We're not stagnant spectators, even though the majority, of course, of us this morning are sitting. The reality is the Christian life is to be lived. It's to be entered into. And so we're in this series called Unstuck, and Pastor Mike's been sharing for a couple of weeks, and along the way, he's highlighted some big truths. And if you have your notes this morning, you might want to jot down some things along the way as I share today. But this part isn't in your notes, just a recap. First of all, we talked about realizing I'm not God. That's a huge recognition. And even though most of us would go, well, I never thought of myself as God, the the fact is that a lot of times we do become the center of our own universe, and we feel that if a problem needs to be solved, we've got to somehow step up, keep a stiff upper lip, and solve it on our own. But again, the Bible makes it plain that God sent his son Jesus into the world to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. Secondly, we talked about being earnestly believing that God exists and that I matter to him. This is part of the process of recovery. This, by the way, is part of a worldview, and you've got to come to terms. Everybody does with one of two issues. 
Do I believe that this world is simply random chance and I'm out here on my own? Or can I entertain the possibility or the reality that there is a God? There is a God that supersedes this world and my life. And there is a God that that actually took steps to reveal himself to me. This is important. To believe that God exists. Thirdly, to consciously choose then, based on that belief, to yield my life and my will over to God. Now, that's not a one-step process. This is something that we do again and again, that as we continually yield ourselves over to God's love and to Christ's care and control. But today I want to talk about a fourth idea in this series. It's called um, openly examining and fessing my faults to myself and to God and to someone I trust. It really has to do with keeping it real. And so I want to give you some uh, mental hooks along the way that I hope will help you remember this. So if you're taking notes, the first step in this process is to take stock. Take stock. In other words, do an inventory, do an analysis. So last week when Pastor Mike was speaking, he mentioned that uh, sobriety, which you often uh, hear about certainly through AA, sobriety means staying away from the things that create chaos in our lives. But recovery is the process of losing our desire for them. Now, there's a world of difference between these two. If I engage in sobriety, and it's a noble thing, the reality is I'm having to do management. I'm having to deal with these issues in a way that I'm trying to control the situation. But in recovery, I open myself up to change. I open myself up to a new relationship, a relationship that can absolutely cause me to live life in a way that I never thought was possible. So I'm going to show you an image on the screen in just a moment to kind of illustrate the importance of uh, uh, the inventory I'm going to talk about in just a moment. So if you'd put that first image up there, take a look at this image and uh, see if you can figure out what that is. Now, you don't have to respond out loud. You can whisper to your seatmate there, but what do you think that is? All right, let's step back and get a little bigger perspective. Let's, all right. How many of you guessed it was an eye? Good for you. But it goes even a step further. Take a look at this. It's Pastor Mike. (laughs) All right. So when you look at that image and you begin to pull back, you notice how clarity comes. This is what we call perspective. Perspective can be gained over time, but it's also gained sometimes by distance. By pulling back and looking at a situation more objectively than we otherwise would do. That's what we're going to look at in just a moment. But before we talk about the inventory, I I just want to suggest to you that there are a couple of reasons, even as I talk it through today, that some of you will resist doing this inventory. The first one is this. Um, Maybe you don't yet hurt badly enough. Maybe you're not quite ready to do what it takes to get unstuck. I mean, you want to be unstuck, but, you know, if you have to pay a price to do it, I'm not quite as sure. I'm reminded of the guy I heard about some years ago. He's living in Arizona. He was driving around uh, Phoenix one day, and uh, early in the morning, actually, and he had a truck, and he would drive it, pull up to a light, and then he'd jump out, and he took out a broom, and he started beating on the back of the truck, and the bed of the truck that had a a cab on it. And, And then he would get back in the truck, and he would drive, and every few blocks he would do this. Well, a guy saw this happening, so he thought, I'm going to follow this guy and see what's going on. So he followed him, and sure enough, every time he came to a light, he stopped. He jumped out of the truck, grabbed the broom, and started beating on the back of the truck. And this went on for several minutes. Finally, the guy pulled into a parking lot, and the fellow that was following him couldn't resist. So he pulled in behind him, and he said, why on earth do you keep banging on the back of that truck? And you keep stopping at lights, and you go back and just pound on that truck. The guy said, well, it's like this. 
I've got two tons of birds and I've got a one-ton truck. So I have to beat on the truck to keep half the birds in the air at all times. And I think about that story, and I think some of us live life like that, you know? We're going through life. We've got the stuff we know we need to deal with, but it just takes too much energy, we fear, or it takes too much honesty. We don't quite hurt that badly yet, and so we continue to go through the process. But the reality is that sometimes we have to face up, really oftentimes, to short-term pain to get a long-term gain. I mean, it's fairly evident in the area of finances that if you can discipline yourself when you're young and begin to uh, invest it in a wise way, if that's possible, uh, invest it, and then over time that money yields a greater benefit, the time value of money. In the same way, when we deal with issues up front and we get them resolved, we're able to move on, and the benefits last with us on and on. But when it comes to getting unstuck, you see, there is no quick-fix solution. There is, no, there is no way to short-circuit it. Even though we talk about praying and receiving Jesus in your life, and it's true Jesus comes into your life, but, but Jesus also expects us to be engaged in this process. But a lot of times, until we experience something that causes us uh, to really see the value of moving forward in this process, we avoid it. Now, I've done a lot of research in this area, and it's interesting that the number one tool that God uses to get our attention is something we don't like. It's called pain. And experts generally agree on this, that that suffering and pain is a tool that God uses. Now, some of you are in pain this morning, and you had nothing to do with it. It's the situation you're in. That's not the kind of pain I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about the sort of pain that we've had some involvement in, or we have some ability to resolve, but rather than resolve it, we, we just were afraid to touch it. But when that pain gets great enough, that's when people often, in fact, turn their lives over to the Lord. C.S. Lewis, the great uh, Oxford scholar, said this. God whispers to us in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, God normally operates kind of low-key in terms of he doesn't speak to us overtly, at least not very often. Uh, God, God is one who makes himself manifest by prompting our thoughts. But when we get busy and distracted, it's easy to shut God out. And so a lot of us, we don't quite hurt badly enough. Secondly, it, it is emotionally draining at times. Becoming whole, I think, means scrolling back into our life. And I've taken this journey on more than one occasion, just kind of stepping back into my past and retracing some steps around my, my parents and my, my brothers and my extended family and, and even other parts of my journey, other parts of my life, and to look at it and say, now, what, what was it in this situation that helped shape me into the person I am today, both good and bad? And you know what? All of us have those kinds of experiences. You heard two stories this morning, but they were rather quick to be able to share some pretty significant events that they had experienced in their life. In other words, they walked through a number of things, and every one of us in the room at some level can identify. But because it's emotionally draining, we do the exact opposite of what God would prompt us to do, and that is we bury the pain. And I wonder if anybody in the room has a beach ball here. Oh, thank you. Drew had a beach ball. I I knew he did. (laughs) But it's like this. If you've ever gone swimming, you know, you get in the pool and then maybe there's a beach ball in there. And, and here's what happens in life. It's like, it's like playing with a beach ball in the pool, only it's a much more serious game. And it's not a game at all. 
And that is when you, when you look at this beach ball, if you're in a pool and you try to hold it under the water, especially depending on how much air is in the, in the beach ball or how big it is, you push that under. You can hold it under under your own strength, can't you? You could even hold it under for quite a while. You could sit on it. I've done that. You can lay on it. And you could even stand on it, which is much more difficult. But at the end of the day, it pops up. And this is true when people bury their pain. Now, some are so good at it, it may not even show up until they're in their 70s or 80s, maybe not even at all, frankly. But a lot of people, or dare I say all of us, walk around with a beach ball in our lives and we hold it under. We do our best, but it just keeps wanting to come to the surface. So let that be a bit of a metaphor for us this morning about pain in our life and what happens when we fail to address it. This morning, if you reach inside and look at your notes, there is an inventory on the, the front of your notes. and uh, we, we wanted this here so uh, you had a tool that you could work with. At the bottom of the page, it indicates you can actually get more details about this. You can get a, a full-size version of it if you would like to have a, a copy of it um, that you could share with others or perhaps use on another occasion as well. But uh, let me walk this through with you briefly, and I know this is a little bit remedial for a moment, but just stay with me. It's worth the effort. Notice this, in column one, when we, think about, when we think about taking stock, in this column you would write the names of any person or people or things that have caused you resentment in your life. Anything that caused you to, to have a sort of pain that's lingering with you. There's a person or a thing behind it that caused that. In fact, resentment mostly is unexpressed anger and fear. That's what resentment is. Now, the Bible, I love the counsel of the Bible in Ephesians 4. It says this, stop being bitter and angry and mad at others. And by the way, the primary reason for this is because bitterness eats us up. And it's only when we find freedom from that bitterness, and there are steps to take, of course, for that to be resolved. But it's only when we we give up that bitterness and we choose to move on and and, uh, forgive someone or to make restitution where it's needed that, that we're able to find that we're, we can move on to the next stage. So let me ask you, is there someone on your mental dashboard that's like a flashing red light? Is there some person that came to your mind when I said this and you thought, oh, you know, I kind of buried it, but eight years ago something happened in this relationship and it's never really been resolved. Could be a big thing, could be, could be something smaller that you need to deal with, but it's a flashing red light. Or maybe there's something in your life that causes you to feel that way. That goes in the first column. The second column is the cause. You've heard the saying, hurt people hurt people. So in this column, you want to write down what caused your hurt. Maybe, and this is common for many, so I'll use this example. It could have been an emotionally distant father. You know, I've worked with men for decades, and I find as a man and among men that a lot of times as men, we're not always that secure. And it's very easy to be emotionally distant. Or maybe you had a father that was generally absent from your home. Or maybe there was a relative, or maybe there was a friend, someone that caused some pain in your life, and you can identify that pain. You'd write that in column two. Now notice, this is likely to generate some pain in your own life. Just being reminded of this, this is why we push it down. It's easier to push it down at times for the moment than it is to let it come to our conscience. But the good news is we don't walk this path alone. It says in Isaiah 41.10, the Lord's saying this, don't be afraid, I am with you. This is not just a great commission when the Lord sends us into the world. The promise of God is he is always with us in every situation. 
In fact, God always goes before us into every situation. So you can bank on that. The good news is you don't go it alone. He says, I am your God. I will make you strong as I protect you with my arm and give you victories. So we're walking this process through with the Lord. Thirdly, there is an effect. How did this specific action hurt or affect your life? So, for example, if you had a father that was distant, maybe the pain for you today is, as a dad, even though you or a mom, even though you want to be close to your children, you find it's really hard for some reason. It's really hard. It's what you saw modeled in your home, and you don't know how to move beyond that. And so it's painful to you in the present. It has an effect, and that effect, in fact, to go to the fourth idea, that effect is damaging because now we're playing that out, and it's affecting not only ourselves but others. So let me ask you, under item four, what are some of your basic instincts that maybe have been wounded? Uh, to keep it simple, we put it in the form of three S's this morning. The first one, socially, maybe you've suffered a broken relationship or you grew up in a home that was filled with broken relationships. And so even to this day, you feel the sting of that. And you're carrying that wound with you this morning because you realize people aren't perfect and people blow it, but, but still, it's affected you in such a way that now has created some damage in your life. Or maybe the other S, security. Maybe, maybe your physical well-being was threatened in some way. I'll tell you a situation I've dealt with several times through the years are, are people that um, have actually lent money to someone else, uh, one brother or sister to another brother or sister, and in some cases that person didn't come through in paying it back and maybe skipped town or did something that really caused that relationship to be destroyed. And so as a result... These individuals suffered some physical harm, and, and it required, in their case, sitting down, and in this case, talking to me and perhaps others, to kind of work through the pain they were feeling in that moment. That's what we're talking about here. What's the damage that was done? Like, like I'm really anger, angry, and it hurts me personally and financially because of something that so-and-so did in my life. And then, of course, a big one is sexually. You know, you could go the world over. This is, this, is a, this is an issue that we see in every culture, in all places at all times. That people get abused, people get manipulated, people are emotionally damaged or abused or verbally or physically. And maybe uh, a sense of intimacy or trust was broken or damaged in your life. I want to say to you this morning, Jesus loves you. He knows your hurt and your pain. And he wants to bring healing and restoration in your life. This is part of that process. It may go well beyond this where you get further help, but I, I want you to see that, that this happens. And then when you think about this, I want you to notice, uh, lastly, uh, the Bible tells us in Psalm 139, 23, Search me, O God, know my heart, test me, and see if I have any anxious thoughts in this area. But notice the last part is my part, the last column. Scripture says in Lamentations 3.40, let us examine our ways and test them, and then let us return to the Lord. Now, what's interesting about that passage is notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say examine their ways. We've already done that in the first couple of columns. Now it's time to look and to do an honest moral inventory and to be ruthless with the facts and to say, what was my part in this? Some of you have walked through broken marriage relationships and it's not to bring up pain into your life. Perhaps that's been resolved or generally resolved in your life. But just to say, if you've gone through a broken relationship, you know there's a point at which you have to say, you know, I, I wasn't sprouting any wings at certain moments. 
I failed my spouse. I blew it on occasion. Doesn't mean it should have ended in divorce necessarily. It just is a way to say I had a role that I contributed. Regardless of what that other person did, I too had a stake in this game. In this column, you would list the names of people where perhaps you've injured them and you've left some things unresolved. I just want to add this footnote. Oftentimes, young people, boys and girls, are molested or taken advantage of in ways that they had nothing to do with. If that's your case, then I want you to write in that last column, just write none or not guilty. Because you had no role in that. That, that is the case for you. And you need to claim your freedom in Christ. And that's what I would encourage you to do this morning. Notice once you've taken stock, though, there's a second part of this journey, and that is to start over. You see, most of us live with a fear, and I've seen this fear played out. It played out in my life. I've seen it in the lives of others. In fact, my wife and I often talk about this. This fear that all of us have goes something like this. You have your own version of it, but here's how it goes. If people only knew at my work or at church or wherever, I'm not as good or as smart or as strong as they think I am, they would be really disappointed with me and my world would cave in. I mean, don't you feel that way sometimes on your job? For example, if they really knew I'm not this super brilliant person, they would understand I just don't have it all wired in every area. This fear can lead us to put up emotional barriers that don't need to be there. Uh, when I was in grad school, uh, years ago, I remember I was taking a psychology course, and I, I read a book, and uh, I only remember the title of the book in this one quote, but it goes something, the title of the book was this, Why Am I Afraid to Tell You Who I Am? I'm sure some of you have read it. In it, the author says this, I'm afraid to tell you who I am because if I do, you might not like me and I'm all I have. It's true, isn't it? The issue of acceptance is at the core of all of our lives. We want to be accepted for who we are and yet every one of us at some point, if we're honest and we are typically honest with ourselves, we feel uh, unlovely and unaccepted and unworthy and on and on the list goes. It's a universal thing we feel. There's a book that came out, I'm sure, many years ago called The Velveteen Rabbit. You probably read it to your kids. If you didn't, you might want to read it. Like a lot of kids' books, there are, I think, deeper meanings hidden away in it, so these books are fun to read. But let me tell you the story about the skin horse and the rabbit. One day they were having a conversation The skin horse had lived longer in the nursery than any of the others. He was so old that his brown coat was bald in patches and showed the seams underneath. Most of his hair, the hairs of his tail had been pulled out to string bead necklaces. He was wise for he had seen a long succession of mechanical toys arrive to boast and swagger and by and by break their mainsprings and pass away. And he knew that they were only toys and that they would never turn into anything else. For nursery magic is very strange and wonderful. And only those playthings that are old and wise and experienced like the skin horse understand what it's all about. What is real, asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came in to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside of you and a stick-out handle? Real isn't how you're made, said the skin horse. It's something that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit? Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once like being wound up, he asked her, bit by bit. Well, it doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. 
It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off. Thank you, Jesus. And your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. I suppose you're real, said the rabbit. And then he wished he hadn't said it for he thought the skin horse might be sensitive. But the skin horse only smiled. And you see, and they read a story like that and it, it kind of presses into what we feel oftentimes as people. How we feel, uh, if I'm really real, if people see me warts and all, they won't accept me for who I am. But the reality is, this is what draws us closer into relationship. This is, in fact, what, what true intimacy is all about. So what I want to do for just a few moments is take a look at the inventory from a slightly different vantage point. We call this the moral aspect of that inventory or the moral inventory, which means to be truly honest. So let me just give you some insight as you think about filling out the inventory that I just walked through with you. Here are steps to take. Number one, make time. Some of you are going to be prone to want to put this off. I would say within the next several days to the next month, if you would carve out some time to enter into this process, don't rush it. Give God time to speak to you. He speaks to us in those silent moments. God will begin to reveal truths out of your past that you maybe need to come to grips with. Secondly, open yourself up to the truth, even if it's painful. Get in touch with why you feel the way you do about certain people or things in your past. Thirdly, R, rely. Don't walk through the process alone. Invite God into the process with you and perhaps share with some friends that you're taking this inventory and you would appreciate their prayers and encouragement. And then notice letter A. Analyze. Do an honest assessment of your past. Honest. This is why we call this a searching and fearless moral inventory. It's not without pain, perhaps. And then L, list. Identify things both good and bad. Now, we talked about some pain in your life, but you know there are good things in your life that you need to celebrate. Make a note of those items, too. Keep the inventory balanced. Now, here's something key to all of this. Some years ago, a singer-songwriter was asked a question about why it was that so many of his hit songs came out of his early years. And I loved his reply. He said this, I learned a long time ago that I have a great future in my past. The same is true for those of us who are in Christ. We all come to Jesus with a past. And when we come with that past, the Bible tells us that Jesus takes our pain and he comforts and heals us if we invite him into that story. And our redemption story then is not only a blessing and a change for us, but God then wants to use your story. The things that right now may be very painful in your life, God wants to redeem those things in your life so you can encourage others. And there's a great verse of scripture in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. It says this, Praise God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father is merciful God who gives us comfort. Then he says this. He comforts us when we are in trouble so we can share that same comfort with others in trouble. God wants to use you in the lives of others. So thirdly, to come clean then, that's the last idea here in the process. Coming clean, to be really real, means we need to own up to three audiences. We need to own up to ourselves. We need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be honest with God. God knows our hearts, so we can't hide from God, but sometimes it's hard to admit and to confess even to the God who knows all things. And then also we have to enter into relationship with others. Uh, the Bible calls this venture into truth-telling confession. 
And in order to personalize this point this morning, I've invited a couple of my friends to join me on the stage. Uh, Drew and Robin uh, Chikaitis, would you join me in welcoming them to the stage? And uh, we're going to just, we're going to take just a moment. And uh, there's uh, so much these amazing people can say. Uh, Drew is on our staff. Pastor Drew heads up our Celebrate Recovery Ministry. So we're really in his sweet spot. And part of the reason we're in that sweet spot is because Drew and Robin have walked through life. And they've done exactly what we talked about today. They faced up to some very tough things. So I know quite a bit of your story. But I know that there's an amazing redemptive story in your, in your marriage story. Uh, but your marriage wasn't always redeemed in the sense I'm talking about. So, Robin, could you share a little bit about what your early years of marriage were like? Wasn't pretty, okay? <laughs> uh, first, we got married 33 years ago. I was 19 years old and Drew was 20. Neither of us were Christians. I came into the relationship with baggage of sexually being abused and emotional abuse. I struggled with trust. I was looking for someone to love me just as I was. I was a different person. I was a different person, too, and uh, I was insecure. I had messages that I didn't measure up, that I wasn't good enough. I would have done anything to get the approval of others. I medicated myself with drugs and a lifestyle of sensuality, and I had no moral compass, and I would, would do anything for people to accept me. Right, so you take these two very different stories. So, Drew, how did this then play out in your marriage? Well, I had no real understanding about what love was. To me, it was all about getting, not about giving. And basically, I was looking for anyone to meet my needs. I didn't value Robin as a person, and I didn't value our marriage. And as a result, I broke, our tr- broke the trust she gave me in the third year of our marriage. I knew it was wrong. I wanted to make it right. Uh, I wanted to confess it to her, and, um, but I knew it would crush her. And it was at that time that I began to seek God out. And he told me that I needed to confess it to her. I argued with him that she would leave, and he said, no, I, I needed to trust him. So I tried to find that perfect moment, as people will, to break the news to someone you care about that you had failed them. And there really is no such time. And I can remember holding her in my arms and watching her crush as I broke the news to her. So, Robin, you were, and Drew are in this incredible pain at this time. He's going through this stuff internally that you don't right. necessarily know about. How were you feeling at that time? Well, I knew that there were problems, and um, I suspected it, but I was still afraid of, of having those realities come to, to fruition. But I was crushed. It renewed my, my messages of the past that I wasn't enough, I didn't measure up, and I felt like a victim. The hurt turned to anger, and I wanted Drew to feel as bad as I did. Our marriage was broken, and we couldn't fix it. We went into counseling. Uh, first counselor didn't help much, and then we chose a different counselor. And I saw Drew, that Drew was sincerely sorry that he didn't. Um, he realized the pain he had caused me, and he said, I never want to do this to you again. And, um, but I still wanted him to pay for the, the hurt that I felt. Um, I found many people who shared my, my anger at the time that my husband was horrible and, you know, that just fed my justice that I was a hurt woman. And I was. Yeah. And, um, but a close friend challenged me that I really needed to look at my part in the marriage as well and where I had failed. Mm. And I was angry when she said that. I was like, how can she say this? I've, you know, it's not my fault. And 
but um, it was it was good for me to hear that because it was it was reality time, mm-hmm. and either we were going to try to work on our marriage or it was going to end. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but one day the the counselor that we were meeting with said, "Today is the day to choose to forgive or let him go." And I'm thinking to myself, and I'm paying for this. <laughs> <laughs> our counselor had seen that I was using unforgiveness as a weapon. The counselor was right. I needed to make a choice. Uh, He told me forgiveness meant I was never to bring it up again and needed to be willing to give Drew my trust. I was able to confess he was right, and I took my step of faith. And Because Robin made that choice to forgive me, and she sought God out to give her that forgiveness when she didn't have it, I experienced God's grace in a way that I never believed was possible. Um, I got something I knew I didn't deserve, and as a result, I became a champion for my marriage rather than the culprit. Um, We don't talk about this very often, and to to Robin's credit, she really took that challenge, and she's never brought it up in in any moments of anger or anything during the last 30 years. The only time we'll talk about it is when we feel like it might benefit someone else. Mm -hmm. And since that time 30 years ago, Jesus has been alive in our life. And we've been walking with him ever since. So, Robin, let me ask you, uh, Andrew, what, what kind of final piece of advice or two would you give to us today? Well, that day our marriage died, and we had to have a fresh start. And that was my forgiving, forgiving Drew was that fresh start. And then God worked on both of our lives, and we both became believers, and, and God has used. God never wastes a hurt. Mm-hmm. So... So even in sharing our own brokenness, it's, it's a way to say, you know what, we're all in process. We're all working on things, and I haven't arrived, and Drew hasn't arrived. We're, we're fellow strugglers that we're just going through this life and working on things as we go. But um, my verse during this time was um, Joel 2.25. I will restore to you the years the locust has eaten. We are totally different people than we were 33 years ago. If we would have stayed the same and not grown through this, we wouldn't be married. He would probably be dead. I mean, God knows where I'd be. So, you know, I thank God for his grace and mercy. But uh, one thing, confession is never easy. Everyone needs to start by getting honest with themselves first and then God and then someone they trust. And I encourage you to work on your own brokenness. Um, don't let Satan keep you or use fear to keep you from freedom and wholeness in Christ. My counsel would be that God's in the business of breathing life into death. That's what he does best. And God is faithful. He will guide you in your redemptive journey. And perhaps more importantly, go at it with the faith that God wants to do something for you, in you, and through you that you never believed was possible. Thank you so much. Can you join me in in expressing our thanks to Drew and Robin? You know, it's wonderful when you hear stories like this and and you see how God does bring about transformation when people take the steps we're talking about. Let let me just kind of wrap up very briefly. Uh, They've already hit on the main idea that I want to communicate in this last thought about coming clean. And that is we need to be honest with, first with ourselves, And we're honest with ourselves, just like in that story, when they began to move beyond their denial to admitting that they had some work to do in their relationship, as all of us do, if we're in a relationship, typically, it's ongoing. Because it's so easy for resentment and hurt and pain to creep in or for us to wound our 
our, um, our spouse. And the reality is that's part of what it means to be human. Secondly, though, is to be honest with God. There's a great story, the story of the prodigal son. And in part of that story, there, the boy wakes up, and he's in, like, desperate straits. And it says, first he came to his senses. In other words, he got honest with himself. And then it says he realized that, first and foremost, he had sinned against his Father in heaven. He confessed to God, he got up, and he returned home, where, again, he then had to be honest with others, in that case, his Father. So being honest with ourselves, being honest with God, and then being honest with others. The Bible is very clear that we need to communicate with one another when we've wronged someone. And it does take courage, and it can be very painful. But notice in James 5.16, it says, If you have sinned, you should tell the other what you've done. Then you can pray for one another and be healed. That's confession. That's coming clean. The best way to do this, I think, is by keeping short accounts. And without talking further to Drew and, and Robin about this, I'm sure as the years have gone by, they, they have been in much better open communication with one another so as not to allow things to fester and get bitter and be brought up again. That's dealing with it in a way of integrity. So let me end with these three kind of takeaways for you this morning. Number one, don't ever forget we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where relationships, even marriage relationships, don't gravitate toward closeness. They actually end up pushing apart from one another. It takes effort and the grace of God for relationships to be what they're meant to be. None of us are immune from this. None of us. Secondly, this is why Jesus came. He came to set things right. And even though the world still isn't perfect and marriages aren't perfect, the reality is we can do so much better when we walk forward with grace and courage and forgiveness and honesty, which is the third idea, and that is that healing demands honesty. There's no way to ever to achieve what I've talked about this morning without real honesty, without being really real, if you will. And so as I close this morning, I'd like to invite you to bow your heads this morning, and I want to pray for you today. And as I pray, I just want to look around very quickly. No one else looking around. If you're feeling stuck this morning and you want to be unstuck and you're wrestling with this issue right now, would you just slip your hand up real quickly? Just hold it up. Just an honest admission. As I look around the room, I see a lot of hands that have gone up. I'd be raising both of my hands this morning because I recognize the truth of this principle and the power that's behind it. And so, Jesus, I thank you for my brothers and sisters this morning who want to be unstuck in their relationship with you, their self, and indeed with others in their world. And so I pray, Father God, this morning that you would bring about the healing and the restoration, that you would provide the courage that it takes to walk through what looks to be a place of pain that actually leads to incredible liberation. And Jesus, we thank you that you're a God who understands and teaches regularly the principles of confession and forgiveness and restoration and renewal. Thank you for your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.